This is all about wine, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Rod. Basically, what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Hey, thank you, Busty. There we are. There we are. Live. Everywhere. A couple seconds. All right. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday, October 19th. Ta-da. October 23. We have to say the year or two. We've been on so long. We don't want people to uh, tune into a, an episode on archives and, yeah. and uh, get the wrong year. So we have to let them know this is 2023. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what's happening in the world that we can talk about? We have a guest tonight, but. I didn't confirm him soon enough, I don't think. It, it's my bad. If he calls in, great, because he is a uh, better man than I, Gunga Din. It's, uh He's remembered, and he'll call in. But I followed up not too long ago. I mean, I'm, we're talking you know, minutes, not hours or anything. And I haven't heard from him back yet. So hopefully Jonathan will be on top of it and call in and we can talk to him. He is an author of a book about Australian wine, how to drink Australian wine. And he's also a sommelier and all sorts of good stuff. So hopefully, hopefully he'll call in. If not, then I will scramble here and we'll find some stuff to talk about and share with you today. Now, it's happened before that guests have not called in, so it's not like we are totally panicky, but it's always nice to be able to get what we advertise. But, oh well. Uh, yeah, he's he's got quite... Uh, Quite a uh, resume here. If we don't get him today, I will definitely get a hold of them and we'll get him in a future date. So, uh, oh, wait a minute. He is a good man. I think he is on the uh, in the green room right now. He just came in, went to the green room, and I think we we'll have to bring him on. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to All About Wine. Hello. 
I really, really, really appreciate the fact that you called in because I didn't send a follow-up email to Sarah until about a half hour ago, and uh, I usually send it, you know, a, a day before and confirm your appearance, but you're very good. I appreciate you remembering <laughs> and calling in and get, getting in touch with us. Uh, I appreciate that. No, Sarah um, had put in the notes to call a few minutes after seven and it was three minutes past and I hit seven. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So uh, very good. So uh, again, welcome to All About Wine. Um, glad you can join us tonight. We, uh, uh, I was just talking a little bit about your, well, really wasn't about your your resume. You uh, you have quite a background, so why don't we start that way? Tell us about yourself and uh, you know where you're from and how you uh, have progressed to the point where you are now and your wine experience and all that good stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess we should start at the beginning. Um, That's good. I. <laughs> I grew up in New Jersey. Um, Where at New Jersey? Parents, uh, in a town called Monroe, um, Monroe, just right outside New Brunswick, East Brunswick area. Um, uh-huh. My parents were both public school teachers. Um, and after high school, I went away to study, you know, at college, originally sports medicine and architecture for a moment. And all the while was, was working in restaurants and, and really enjoyed it. And at one point, Enjoyed, realized I enjoyed the restaurants more than the classroom. So stopped <laughs> going to school. And um, just kind of focused on that for a bit. Uh, and um, my father was, was teaching at uh, a local junior college. So I got an associate's degree in hospitality um, after I kind of really said, I think I was probably my, I was, I don't know, 22, 23. And I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Um, and, you know, was uh, working in restaurants, bartending, serving, uh, worked in uh, a few kind of fun Central Jersey restaurants, a place called Trepiani in Princeton. Um, it's no longer there. And, uh, and then two guys in New Brunswick, New Jersey, Mark and Francis at stage left. Um, and they really kind of showed me uh, kind of the great world of wine. And, and shortly thereafter, I moved into New York and uh, started working in restaurants in New York. Um, and was fascinated by wine, but also just loved operations and um, kind of always saw wine as part of the whole and early on had, you know, some kind of junior management roles where I got to play with some wine a little bit or play with the cocktail program. Um, And then uh, had the opportunity to work as a sommelier, as a kind of full-time sommelier for the first time at a restaurant called Porterhouse, which was in the Time Warner Center. Uh, mm-hmm. under uh, Chef Michael Amonico, whose post before that was Windows on the World, um, wow. and just absolutely loved it and just loved running around the room and selling wine and opening wine, and it was really just a lot of fun and, and was totally hooked. Um, and and from there, kind of just progressed along. I was uh, ended up managing Oceana for a little bit in Midtown and, and then went to work as a sommelier at 11 Madison Park, uh, was there for six years, um, kind of through the climb of the 50 best, which was just a really, uh, just an incredible time to be in New York, to be working in that restaurant, 
to be fascinated with wine, to be in tasting groups. It was really a, a special moment, and I think um, I was lucky to be in that place at that time. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't really always have control over that, I think. Um, That's true. Yeah, sadly. You know, and I met my now wife uh, in New York in a in a tasting group before um, we started working together. She then joined the team at 11 Madison Park afterwards. And uh, in 2016, she late 2016, she was offered a role to run the wine program at a restaurant called Attica in Melbourne, which at the time was the, the top Australian entry on the world's 50 best restaurant. Wow. And uh, we said, why not? Let's go. And we had never been. Um, so we moved. She moved a little bit earlier than I did in early 2017. Um, my initial goal was to be a scuba diving house husband. Um, <laughs> but we didn't move to that part of Australia. And what's funny is I think, you know, it's just that's a perfect underscore of what you know, we thought Australia was, and it was all beaches and, and ripe Shiraz, and, and that's it. And we instantly were, exactly, and, and that was it. And, and we were instantly um, just cut our eyes wide, open wide. Um, I uh, went to work as the beverage director for the Rockpool Group while there and did a couple of other fun things, started a little wine label, um, and making made my own wine for four vintages. Um, wow. And we were just kind of completely enchanted by everything we saw, uh, a really earnest and open and inclusive wine industry, um, world-class wine regions, you know, within an hour's drive from our, from where we lived and in the center of Melbourne, um, you know, we encountered, you know, probably our most authentic connections to wine, or we, or we created our most authentic to, connections to wine to date. Um, because of our time in Australia. And we always say Australia chose us, and, and we're pretty lucky that it did because, it, um, you know, working in New York for a long time, it's a Eurocentric market. You can get a little jaded and so on. And, and, and we, it made wine new and fun again and, and curious. Um, and within a year of being there, we just realized we had to bring Australian wine back with us because everything we've ever been taught tested on, marketed to about Australian wine uh, has been based on less than 10% of uh, the producers in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily the volume, but just the diversity of what happens in Australia in the landscape. So uh, in 2020, we moved back a little bit earlier uh, because of COVID and oh. launched Legend Imports. Um, so we're almost three years old um, and we've been importing uh, artisanal Australian producers ever since and distributing them around the country. Um, early on in that endeavor, we realized that while we had learned a lot about that Australian wine, the U.S. had not. So um, we decided to write the book that we wish we had when we were studying wine. Um, you know, uh, Jane and I uh, both passed the Master Sommelier exam along the way. And, oh, um, yeah. You know, we we uh, we were we consider ourselves studious sommeliers. You know, we we were told we were studious sommeliers, and um, we just realized that there was just a major blind spot in the in- that the entire U.S. wine industry had. Um, so we saw. I don't know if it's really a commercial opportunity. Hopefully, one day it becomes that. Um, but that's what we're doing. 
Very good. It, it sounds exciting. Uh, the, uh, let's. Uh, uh, Those are the high notes. <laughs> yeah, that's. Well, let's. Let me get a few questions in here and a little bit more detail on a few things. Uh, your import company. Uh, yes. Uh, where do you import? Where do you bring it from? Uh, are you distributed all over the country, or are you restricted, or what's uh, what's the word? So we uh, represent 32 different Australian wineries uh, wow. that are sourced from a number of regions in all of Australia's wine-producing states. Um, and, you know, there's 65 different wine-producing regions across Australia. Um, 65? And, and it's a, it's a, it's a landmass the size of the U.S. Um, and, you know, again, there's many producers where we are the sole importer of a producer from that region, and that region could be a marquee region for domestic consumption and on the best wine list, but you would never know it here. Um, and we warehouse in Oakland, California. Uh, uh-huh. We currently distribute in 27 states. The U.S kind of liquor laws are, are special and unique uh. and <laughs> different uh, and different yeah. to each state. So you have to have a wholesale license for every state that you want to sell to a restaurant or retail shop. So yes, the three-tier system, that mandates a three-tier system. So we sell to state wholesalers, and then we work with them to sell to retailers and restaurants. We always make the joke because it's such an unknown uh, segment of the wine industry that, that we sell the wines three times. We have to get them distribution, then we have to go into market and help the distributors understand what is Australian wine and help them tell the stories to sell the wines. And then we go, while we're in market, we do consumer tastings at retail shops and wine dinners at restaurants and um, just to really kind of spread the gospel. So uh, oh Jane gosh. currently is in, is in, um, in Virginia. Um, I just finished uh, a day of market work in Nashville, um, wow. and we're just, which is where we live. I kind of got a oh. fun homework day in, um, but we're we're all over the place. I go to Phoenix on Monday, and we're just running around selling Australian wine. Wow! Uh, do you sell to Florida? Uh, we do, we do. Florida okay. is a very difficult market, and, and distribution is, is quite consolidated there. It absolutely is. Um, oh wow! I, you know, because Florida usually, whenever I talk to wineries, uh, and I've talked to a bunch of them over the years, Florida is usually a market that almost everybody ships to and everybody's in. That is strange for you uh, to say ship, that. We, well, we well, you just named the number one problem. Everyone's there, um, ah. and everyone has their own preconceived notions about Australia. So we have distribution there. Um, I'll actually be doing a, a pretty big trade day at the Miami Culinary Institute in January with the book uh, and a consumer event. Uh, but, you know, we find that, you know, that Florida's the top three wine markets in the country by volume. Uh, we have distribution there. Uh, a small unknown portfolio like us does not work in the hands of a Southern Glazers or R&D oh. or Breakthroughs. Um, <laughs> and they dominate the landscape. You're also yes, in a place do. where consolidation is running rampant across the category. So, you know, no one in the U.S., no distributor or wholesaler or retailer or restaurant, for that matter, says to themselves, you know what? We need to add more Australian wine to our wine program. 
<laughs> yeah, I can imagine. No one says that. <laughs> I can, so, yeah. um, you know, Jane, I say we've done, we've done a lot of really great things in the industry, but this is by far harder than writing a book, harder than the master sommelier exam. This is establishing a real authentic understanding of Australian wine nationally through the distribution channels that exist in the country is the hardest thing we've ever had tried to do. Wow. That's saying something, especially in the fact that you've, you know, like you say, you've written a book, got the sommelier certification and all that, and still calling this the hardest. That is really something. Yep. Absolutely. Uh where where will you be in January in Florida? Um, I think Jane will be in, oh, I want to say um, Fort Lauderdale for a little bit, but then also Miami, and then I will be in Miami. Um, we're still working out the dates, but it's the week of, I think, January 15th. Um, we're going to do a trade tasting at Miami Culinary Institute and then a consumer event um, either with a retailer or at that event, that space as well. Mm. And it's across the state and down the state. I was hoping you'd be on the West Coast. I was, you know, not planning on attending. Um, you're, uh, so when you distribute, you usually go up and follow up with all these, whatever state you're in and, and whatever restaurant. You try to get your presence there and tell them the story and, and promote it yourself? Or do you have people working for you that are doing that? Or is that just a, a two-person job that you've been stuck with? So you have wholesalers and distributors in each state, and they have a sales force. All right. um, and that sales force is only, you know, that you, you hand that sales force a, a bottle of Sancerre to go sell. They know it's made out of Sauvignon Blanc and it's from the Valley. You hand that sales rep a bottle of Chardonnay from a place called Geelong, and they have no idea where it is, no idea what it's supposed to taste like, no idea of the characters <laughs> of those places, and that's not their fault. No. And it, yeah. It's, you know, to be overly critical, it's, it's, it's you know, various educational bodies in the U.S. that tout their excellent um, fault, but I think that's another conversation. Um, we, we see the burden of education on our shoulders first. If you think of what German wine in the U S was before Terry Cease was involved or Spanish and Portuguese wine before Ole and Obrigado was, or French wine before Kermit Lynch. Um, we hope to think that one day we can establish Australian wine as well as those countries and play as significant a role in their establishment uh, as someone like a Kermit Lynch or Terry Thies. Um And it takes time. It takes being on the road. It takes being in front of people telling firsthand stories about a place that's on the other side of the world. Um, right. There's no other way to do it. So it is just Jane and I. Uh, we use a good bit of support from um, a company called USA Wine West who's been in the import and distribution game for a very long time. Um, oh. They manage our compliance and help us with, you know, our sea freight and do a lot of our billing and, and, and really manage a lot of those relationships and things for us um, for fee, of course, but the only two people um, that let that work for legend are its proprietors, me and Jane. Um, and then, you know, like I said, we spend a ton of time on the road 
um, you know, in different markets. So, yeah, and, and that's that's what gets it done. Wow, it's, I can understand that being a handful. You said something there that I, it caught my ear. You said something that people don't know about Australian wines. And I think most people would say, oh, yeah, we do. And right. you, say, you say, name an Australian, a Syrahs. And, I, you know, it, it's <laughs> the knowledge probably ends there with most people. Uh, they don't really equate anything else to Australian wines except just the fact that there's a really nice Syrahs comes out of there and you go to New Zealand there's a, a nice Sauvignon Blancs and they end it right there with their knowledge. But, uh, I, you know, which opens me up to the question, what are some stuff about Australian wines that we need to know? What are some things that people out there need to know more about Australian wines? Uh, uh, and yeah, you said... You know, the regions you know, and everything else, it's, you know, I'll let you explain yeah, all that. Think, you know, you, when you've got a place that's so spread out, right, you've got regions that are colder than Champagne and, and in Germany or, you know, southern Germany where the Mogul is, and you've got regions that are as warm as southern Spain and everything mm-hmm. in between. So because of that, Australia, and, and because Australia has been, really a place of innovation for a very long time in the wine industry and in agriculture in general, you have probably the most diverse set of grapes one country can have. There's more Italian grapes planted than anywhere outside of Italy. There's Spanish grapes, Greek grapes, things from the Jura, obviously all the French classics as well. Um, It really is just a playground, everything from traditional sparkling wines to, you know, 200 years of history making fortified wines. Um, it's it's endless what is available and what will continue to become available in Australia more so than, than any country I've encountered. Um, Mm, Wow. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, and even if you think about, if you think about Italy and the French grapes that appear in Italy, your Cabernets and Chardonnays and things, and when they're produced, they're produced in a manner to appeal to export markets, right? Mm, You know, Very few people in Florence are drinking Cabernet from the Tuscan coast in Bulgaria. Um, you know, that's coming. That, those are export, you know, initiatives. Whereas, you know, in Australia, if you're drinking inexpensive Prosecco or Pinot Grigio, it's grown in Australia. Um, we work with a producer that does everything from Greco and Fiano to Nerdavola and Alianico and Lambrusco and, um, no. you know, all sorts of different things. And because these grapes are so well suited to certain climates in Australia, they achieve really great value. It's really one of the best ways to approach sustainability. Hmm. You fall over? No, that's a, that's a good old Nashville, Tennessee thunderstorm rolling through. Oh, really? <laughs> so if we lose you, then it's the, it's the storm. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, you mentioned getting the grace from everywhere. I'm just curious. I've been talking over the last couple of months to people about Native American grapes. Does Australia have any native grapes? No. Um, the... Uh... Vitis Labrusca, you know, Scuperon, Catawba, all those things are 
that are native to the U.S. are native to the U.S. Uh, the grapevine was brought to Australia um, mm-hmm. at the time of colonization in the 1780s, uh, along with other systems of European agriculture like sheep, you know, grazing and wheat farming and things as well. Uh, but in Australia, there was no phylloxera. So right. these grapes were able to establish themselves. And what's interesting is everywhere you have your original colonies, the vine went into the ground and was the original source of alcohol, of fermented beverage, as it always has been everywhere else. Because it's the only thing that doesn't take any energy, heat, or electricity or anything to create the finished product. Um, you just pick it and it will be. Um, so the oldest vineyards in Australia or the original vineyards today are where the city centers are now. Um, so wine culture has progressed with European culture on the same arc in Australia and places like New Zealand, South Africa, South America, the U S because Philoxera lived here, um, and was, and, and made, um, and because it was, it was, you know, the native American grapes were here, um, you had a different species that was thriving, but it wasn't the vine that domesticates in a similar manner uh, as this vinifera. Um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting. There are no native grapes in Australia. There are traditions of fermenting different beverages that go back tens of thousands of years, um, but not grapes, different fruits, native fruits, saps from different eucalyptus trees and so on, um, hmm. but not wine grapes. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, did uh, uh, the uh, so the growing in Australia is just basically my last couple hundred years. Yeah, same as they've they've expanded all those areas in in that period of time. Uh, you mentioned that you're importing from a smaller boutique wineries. It seems that. A lot of those small wineries can sell all of their wine to Australia to local places. Uh, are they making it producing enough for you to get your distribution and be able to keep ahead of it here in the states? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Because um, yeah, I mean, I think you, a mid-sized producer, right? I mean, uh, a, a small producer or smallish producers producing 10,000 cases, 12,000 cases of wine, right? That's not a lot of wine. You see more, you see 12,000 bottles of, you know, you see probably of, you know, some of the most expensive burgundy being produced, you know, Lafitte would make hundreds hundreds of thousands of bottles. So it's not a, this, there are, we have a number of small producers that will only take a few pallets a year from and that's it. And then we have some other mid-sized producers where, we can take a few thousand cases a year, um, but you know to to rep- you know I mean the extremely large producers that you know make wine and send it to, uh, they're already sending it to us because they're owned by Treasury or Accolade or Constellation. Those oh. those producers are here. That's what we've learned Australia on. Um, you know, it's like Bonfi is in the U.S. Santa Margarita is in the U.S., but right. so are Brunello producers that make 2,000 cases a year. And that same combination can exist 
in the U.S. for Australia, but historically it's only been your Santa Margaritas and Bonfies. And Santa Margarita is a perfect example. You can't buy Santa Margarita Pinot Grigio in Italy unless you're across the street from the Vatican or in the airport <laughs> in the most touristed places. And that goes for Molly Duker, 19 Crimes in Australia. You can't buy those wines there. Um, they're made for export. Uh-huh. Okay, and these are the ones that people know. Uh, so Every when you does it to each other. We all do yeah, it to each they, other. Just like, you know, I mean, Santa Margarita is like a perfect example. Yeah. Well, it, you know, and a lot of times, too, I, what I'm thinking about is I've talked, like, say, wineries around the country, and there's certain states uh, don't produce enough wine to uh, fulfill the needs within that state. That's why it's hard to find, like, certain Texas wines anywhere but Texas or certain uh, Pennsylvania wines or Ohio wines because whatever they make there is just enough to sell there and you don't have enough. I think that a lot of those states don't necessarily have the, those industries maybe are not as, you know, I don't want to say they're not necessarily performing on the level that would, you know, warrant national distribution. I've had some exceptional wines from those from those states, but I don't think that it's the great ones are not representative of the general quality level. They're actually the best quality. Whereas, you know, we represent 32 producers from Australia. I'd go back and get 60 more today. I have a list, but I just don't have the demand here yet because no one knows it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say all these different regions across Australia, uh, I mean regions that compete with Burgundy, that compete with Tuscany, that compete with the Northern Rhone on quality and value, wow. um, where I don't think Texas is competing with Burgundy or the Rhone no. Um, no, on quality and value. No, I, I have to agree with that. They're, they're and I not. know that that's subjective. Um, yeah. But I guess Jane and I have bet our livelihoods and our house literally on that statement. <laughs> I understand that. I have to talk, ask and, and and talk about the weather and how it's affecting the the, the storms, the floods, the fires, the uh, everything. How has it been affecting the grapes in Australia and different regions and the quality and all that? You know, I think it, it's a, a great way to start answer that is to kind of you, you said different regions, and I think that the first thing for us to think about with Australia is that it is the size of the U.S. When there's fires in California, the Finger Lakes of New York don't suffer. Um, And and the same is true in Australia. Their worst bushfire, you know, season on record in Australia in 2020, also the worst bushfire record here. um, The national harvest was lost about 4% of volume. But that's focused on specific regions. So an individual region is, can be devastated by extreme events, just like anywhere else. But nationally, it doesn't necessarily have a huge effect on things. Um, so what I will say with climate, Australia is the driest full-time inhabited uh, continent on the planet. Uh, The only place that sees less precipitation is Antarctica. 
So when it comes to conserving water resources and working in extreme places, Australians have been doing so and adapting for thousands and thousands of years. Um, I've spoken to, you know, First Nation elders who have firsthand stories passed down across generations about, you know, volcanic eruptions that happened 15 years ago or when the ice age ended 11,000 years ago. And (laughs) it's crazy, but it's that adaptation when, you know, Tasmania became an island 11,000 years ago. The fact that there's that storyline exists uh, really informs how people approach the land uh, as it pertains to, you know, finding some type of homeostasis in a lot of, you know, serious extreme climate events. Mm. Oh, well, you know, it, it, when you have history like that, it makes sense that they can work their way through it better than others who just all of a sudden get thrown upon them. Uh, yeah. The, uh, uh, you know, you hear a lot about the uh, uh, bad weather, you know, around Adelaide and even Melbourne and uh, the vineyards outside of those areas. And... I, I don't know. People think, "Oh my gosh, that's horrible! It's it's going to destroy the wine industry." But I guess uh, no. And just... I think you know, when you have you talk to you know winemakers all over the world, they could have a terrible vintage, right? And they say, "How's this? Oh, it's awful, right?" I remember mm-hmm. I went to this estate in County Classico, and every time we asked him a question about a vintage or about something, he said, "It's terrible, it's terrible. Everything's terrible," <laughs> right? But the wine's good. He's like, yeah, the wine's good because I worked my ass off and I made good wine in, in rough circumstances. And I think that's what every, you know, good farmer, good wine grower, good winemaker does yeah. to an extent. And that's, you know, when you think about producers, that's where the producer skill really, when you follow a producer, they make great wine. Oh, they make great wine in great, in great vintages and they make great wine in terrible vintages. Good point. And that, I think, sets people apart. You know, and the, the other aspect is of, you know, in Australia, you know, planting Italian grapes and so on. Yeah, maybe in, in one place, Chardonnay is too finicky or Pinot Noir is too finicky, but Nerodavola, great. It grows, it loves it. It loves the heat, loves the sunshine. So, mm-hmm. you know, the first step in, in, in dealing with those things is simply just planting the right grape in the right place. Yeah, and knowing what you're doing when you plant it and how to grow it and how to harvest it and all that. Yeah, that's a good that, point. That would be the harder part. <laughs> yeah, that would be the harder part. But, you know, after a number of years, these wineries and these growers know how to approach it and what to do with it. So they do do an excellent job. Uh, I, I've always been an Australian wine fan, so you Amazing. don't have to... Don't have to convince me. I've I've enjoyed <laughs> Australian wines for years and years. Uh, the uh, price, uh, what price point are you bringing in? And uh, well, I and you know it, it's hard because of shipping and all that stuff. But what price point are you trying to uh, cater to? Everything. You know, Everything. We, we don't get extremely low. Um, but our, we have wines in our portfolio that have a retail price starting at like 15 bucks. Wow. Um, and goes up from there. I uh, see, I would say the sweet spot of the portfolio sits between 20 and 40 retail mm-hmm. value. Um, and you know, I think 
it's, uh, you know, it's our viewpoint that Australian wine should be a major category, not a minor category. So it can perform well in all those price points. You put it next to it, you, you know, this, this one Cabernet we bring in called Sunspell. You bring in, it's 15 bucks a bottle retail. You put it next to another $15 bottle of Cabernet. And, and I mean, again, we're, we're biased. We think it outperforms. You put a $35 Chardonnay in our portfolio next to a $35 bottle of Chardonnay from France or California. And we think the wines just outperform. Um, you know, it, it's, there's really just a lot of know-how and, and there's a real cultural currency and value placed on creating things of value. You know, there's the old adage in the wine industry, you make things say, oh, what can I charge for this? And I think in Australia, there's the mentality of what do I have to charge for this? And I think that really affects the end price in a positive way. That makes a big difference. You, and one thing I noticed about Australian wines, and this is just what I've found over the years, that their Chardonnays tend to be not heavily oak. They tend to be uh, representative of the Chardonnay grape a little bit more. So same thing with most of the wines I have found over the years from Australia. They tend to be good representation of the flavors and qualities of the grape and not manipulated by oak and other stuff. Am I off base? On yeah, that I, would, I would agree with that. I think that, you know, they're able to, they're skilled at making a wide variety of styles, right? So they can make a, a bigger, fuller style of Chardonnay or Cabernet, but the, I would say maybe the, the general approach is to create wines that speak to place and speak to grape, exactly like you said. Yeah, and, and that just that's one thing I've always enjoyed about Australian wines is uh, it represents the grape so well. Uh, so many other places, I don't know, I could say manipulated too much, I think. So. Uh, yeah, and I think sometimes that's a result of, you know, not necessarily always planting the right grape in the right place, and I think plenty of people do it in Australia. You know, you look at... Um, you know, at the commercial scale level, sometimes things are manipulated to achieve certain things. But, you know, I think um, you also see there's that, like, faux luxury that happens in the wine industry, right? You you take really cheap fruit, you, you know, flavor it and color it and try and make it look like a really expensive Napa cab, but it's really just a cheap cab from all over the you know, California and has 24% Merlot in it. And um, that's just not, not a common approach um, taken in Australia. And, and a lot of times too, oak is just some, some of the wines I taste, especially domestic are so over oaked. It's you've lost flavors. It, it just, if I want to chew on an oak tree, I'll go chew on an oak tree. I don't want it in my <laughs> bottle of wine, you know, just, Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, they go crazy on some of these places. So, so uh, the, uh, are you bringing in any ports uh, or really, uh, well, does Australia have late harvest wines? Yeah, so um, we probably bring in the most storied fortified wine uh, there is. Um, oh. And not just in Australia. So we work with a producer named Seppeltsfield which started their winery in 1851, the Seppelt wow. family. Um, in 1878, uh, Benno Seppelt decided to put 
two 1,000 liter barrels aside of his 1878 fortified tawny or port, um, mm-hmm. not to be touched until 1978. And it was released wow. in 1978, and they've done that ever since. So we currently have the 1923 available. That is our most expensive bottle. It retails for $1,600. Um, wow. But it is 100% fruit from 1923, never topped up. So 100 years, it's been all 100 years in barrel. And it's a state-owned fruit. So when you think of things like Madeira that are aged really long, usually the fruit source is not the, the, you know, the vinifier and the bottler. It's usually fruits bought from other farmers. Right. Usually it's, it's bottled into glass demijohns and, you know, after, or it's bottled after 40 years in barrel at most. Um, vintage port is, you know, taken out of barrel pretty quickly. Um, so it's a pretty unique thing, but we also bring in, you know, more, approachable price point fortified from them tawnies <laughs> and and what they call a para or sherries um but oh, then really? if you've ever had rutherglen muscat before that's a very classic fortified wine that's you know you can also find hundred year old examples of that coming out of the region um and that's a, another fortified sweet wine there's also you know more kind of dessert wines where they're not using alcohol to stop fermentation so it gets alcoholic it's it, they're using you know refrigeration and sulfur which is how most sweet wines are right. stopped, you know, they stop fermentation. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they're doing all sorts of different things. Um, you know, the sweet wine case to palate was, 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 was very healthy and, and abundant um, really through the two world wars into the 60s and 70s. And it wasn't until the 70s where we saw that kind of emergence of interest in dry table wines. You know, Australia and the U.S. saw the Chardonnay boom in the 70s and things and, you know, really kind of similar taste. The reality is Australia and the U.S. are siblings in many ways, um, both, you know, as, you know, English colonies, but then also, you know, just things, you know, the ebbs and flows of industry, you know, gold rushes around the same time, um, you know, just all sorts, you know, bouts of prohibition around the same time, just a lot of similarities. And I was going to ask that, too. I'm glad you brought it up. Prohibition. Did Australia go through a period of prohibition? Not the way the U.S. did. Um, but there were some some uh, small instances of it. Um, but it really didn't stick. I see. What? The states put their own on it or something like that? And it was more about interstate trade and things like that. But it wasn't uh, just about not – it wasn't about, um, you know, abstaining from alcohol. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, well, that's nice. I wish the United States had done that. Um, <laughs> just as a little aside. So what is uh, the uh, uh, majority of grapes that you bring in? I'm Well, uh, are they varietals or blends, or w- what is it that... Uh, you seem to get the best response from? I would say 80 to 85% of the wines that we import are varietal wines. Are they? Uh, and 15% of them are blends. Um, I think wow. blends, uh, you know, blends usually perform better at lower price points when you're not relying on one single grape. It's right. more economical to produce a blend at a winery, so therefore they, you know, cater to more entry-level price points. 
Um, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, there's some kind of higher end blends, maybe like an Alsatian field blend kind of scenario, but, um, you know, we have, you know, sparkling wines that are a blend of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, um, a la Champagne, but, um, the majority of them are varietally labeled. Mm-hmm. And what uh, varietals, uh, is it just a whole gamut or is it any particular Absolutely. ones? That... Everything from Chardonnay and Pinot Noir to Neridavola and Tempranillo and Sangiovese and Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc and, um, you know, there's there's a lot, um, a full spread. Most of and them. Numerous and... producers and numerous examples of each from different regions. And most of my vines are vinifera? All of them are vinifera. All of them? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. Well, I, I suppose that would be what would be planted there and transferred from different countries and planted there would be vinifera, I can, you know, nothing else. And there's, would... there's largely, phylloxera was never in Australia, so most of them are own-rooted, and there's there's no reason to have American rootstocks there. Right, yeah. And... I know, like, I live in Tennessee. I think Native American vines have a place on the dinner table, but they don't have a place being exported to other countries unless they're looking at hybrids to deal with certain climates and so on. Exactly. I I agree. I don't see. And mine, too. I don't see. I mean, American grapes definitely uh, have a place, and they are some really interesting, good wines coming out of them but it's not something that i think is ever going to catch on to be imported around the world it's it's never going to happen i i don't believe so but uh, you know i've been wrong on lots of stuff <laughs> so, <laughs> you know um, um let's see uh i know what i was going to ask uh Australia is noted, a lot of their wineries are noted to be uh, 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 biodynamic and uh, all the uh, next step up from just growing uh, organic and all that stuff. Uh, The ones you're importing from, are they or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not everyone, but, you know, I think organic and biodynamic is a one-size-fits-all approach. I think when we talk about wine, the consumer, the professional, we all want to hear the nuanced story about a specific place. And then we say, oh, is it farmed this way? Well, it's like, no, it's farmed according to that place's needs. So we have producers that were once certified organic and eschewed the organic certification to, you know, farm in a – a, a way that's more specific to their land that, that yields better mm. wine and, and costs less. Um, but Australia is home to half of the world's certified organic farmland. That's not wine oh, really? specific, that's farmland. Uh, I think it's about 48%. Um, wow. You know, there's, uh, it's, it's a, I mean, living there was incredible. The, the local corner grocery store was many times, you know, neighborhood farmer market quality. Um, when you have a single country that supports all of its own agriculture because it's so far away, right? <laughs> Think about yeah. in the U.S. How much, you know, how large our food shed is, where our food comes from in the world. In Australia, produce, fresh produce comes from Australia, and luxury ingredients like certain fancy things, but even like you know, tuna for sushi is caught off the coast of Australia. 
citrus is grown in Australia. Pineapple, there's, you know, so your asparagus is grown in Australia. Everything's grown there. And, and honestly, what's interesting is things that aren't grown there aren't imported. So blueberries you and cranberries, it. you know, cranberries take a lot of water to farm. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, so Australia is a dry country. They don't have the water to waste on flood harvesting the way we harvest, you know, cranberry bogs. So there's no cranberries. Huh. Um, it's just not there. And, and, and it's a really interesting, and I think, again, we talk about sustainability. It's, it's, a, it's a really great, I, I mean, you have everything you need there. And there's some things that maybe you don't remember from home. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting in that sense where everything's kind of just grown there and, and not brought in. Oh, that's, I never thought about that, but that's a good point. And, you know, the time you start shipping stuff there, it's right. going to go bad, uh, especially certain exactly. fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Wow. Right. And, and it's, you know, it's one of the things where, you know, in the U.S. and certain, you know, times of year we get our, you know, some of our vegetables from Chile. You know, I bought Chilean asparagus before it at oh, the yeah. supermarket. That's what? Four-hour flight, six-hour flight, depending on where you are in the U.S.? Yeah. Um, in Australia, that's a much longer, much longer ride. Um, you know, you think of sea freight or, or ground transportation, it's just not possible for things right. like that. So um, it just doesn't happen. And it would be cost prohibitive. You know, the head of lettuce is going to end up costing you six, seven dollars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. If you haven't shipped in, you know, and, uh, cost on that, I know. Um, Mike, is there any uh, uh, any questions, any comments, anything you have for Jonathan? Uh, I don't uh, look on the screens. Yeah, Mike. Mike yeah. is my my co-host. He he sort of sits yeah. in the background and answers and uh, any questions that come through the line and tweets throughout the program uh, stuff you say okay. and he's he's is busy in the background. Tweet? Yeah, that's true. They yeah. may have changed that. He X's. Uh, yeah. yeah. There you go. Um, <laughs> no, just uh, checking social media. I don't see anything there. Chat. Uh, no, I'm uh, good so far. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's, it's yeah. very interesting. We you know, get to talk about another country and everything there. It's cool. Yeah. Cool. Thank yeah. you. In fact, we had uh, a uh, person on from Australia, a female uh, grower, and uh, I I say grower, what else did she do? I know she uh, was a grower, but she was up by Brisbane, and uh, she was on the show with us uh, a few years back. And talking about uh, Australian wines and the growing and all that—that that was very interesting. Uh, so we've uh, we've had the opportunity to highlight Australia a few times, and hopefully we will continue to do so. Uh, yeah, I think just going by memory, uh, I strictly by memory, I think this was back in 2013. Uh, Sonia oh, wow. from Queensland, yeah, Queensland, Australia. Uh, sustainable viticulture. So, yeah. Um, yeah, she's just north of Brisbane in that in that area there. Yeah, 
So, yeah, it's uh, 2013, 10 years ago. Wow. Uh, <laughs> That's a good know. memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His, his memory is... <laughs> Is questionable. Uh, I'm sorry. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> uh, John, what about uh, Tasmania? Is there vineyards there? Do they grow and produce? Tasmania is an exceptional place to grow and produce wine. It's actually the site really? of the first commercial sale of wine in Australia. It happened in 1823. We import wow. uh, one, two, three, four for five producers from Tasmania. Um, wow. It's a place that's uh, gained notoriety and produces exceptional champagne-style wines. Um, the Champagne House Louis Roederer was the first international uh, estate to invest there. Um, but, you know, everything from, you know, great Riesling to savory styles of Pinot Noir uh, and beyond are grown there. Seems like it might be a short growing season pretty cold there though it actually makes a long growing season really so it's drier it's dry there it's so far south but it doesn't freeze because you're an island so Uh you don't have snow and you get a lot of sunshine so we have a producer in Tasmania Our, our Tasmanian producers start harvest when most people on the mainland have finished Oh wow! So, <laughs> so they're picking into they're picking you know April through June, which is like picking you know uh, June is if they're in June they're not picking it, but April May is the sweet spot of their harvest, which is October November here. Yeah, um, that's... for sparkling they'll pick off earlier because they'll pick a little less ripe end of March, um, but you know their springtime is is you know springtime i'm trying to think let's see what right now it's uh april yeah april see what temperature hobart is springtime it is 62 degrees today oh yeah so they're they're probably they're already showing bud burst and, and green growth um on their vines in tasmania in april and so Pinot Noir, you know, right, trying to they bud a little bit later. So maybe they'll they'll do it in a month, but they're not going to pick till till April. So they've got nice long growing. It's the really warm regions that have condensed growing seasons around the world. Unless yeah. it's, unless you have a cold region that's continental and inland and freezes in the winter. But right. Tasmania being an island, uh, it doesn't freeze the way, you know, Germany freezes. I I would have honestly pictured Tasmania as being a lot colder than what you just described because of... It is quite cold. It just doesn't freeze. It's colder than Champagne. It is a very cold growing region, but it has a long, frost-free, sunshine-rich season. Well, that would be interesting. Interesting, you know, drawing and makeup of the whole thing because of that. Hmm. I'm going to have to look up some more stuff about Tasmanian wine just to get a little bit more educated on that. Do you import from all around the country? I mean, is there vineyards like northern Australia, uh, northern territory, no, I mean, northern? It's, you're getting tropical there. You know, it's, Is it's, it really that tropical? Absolutely. 
Okay. Yeah, it's too tropical. You're growing pineapples and mangoes up there. Ah, okay. You know, obviously I've never been to Australia, not to, for lack of wanting to, <laughs> just never have been there, you know. Uh, so I, I guess northern, well, north of Brisbane is, you're looking at probably the limit of your wine growing regions there in Australia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't really go much further north of that, but north of that is the Gold Coast and the Great Barrier Reef. So, it, it, it you know, it turns tropical. It's like trying to grow, trying to go wine in, you know, Florida. Yeah, in Cancun. <laughs> yeah, in Cancun. Yeah, that's. Yeah, we grow grapes down here, but yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay. And then uh, uh, I'm familiar with Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide. How about on over the western part of the uh, the, the continent, uh, Perth, that area? Yeah, we work with. Wines from outside Perth. We work with wines from Margaret River. Um, so Western Australia is uh, a really fantastic source. Oh, is it? Really? Wow. I, like I say, I've you know you hear about the big areas, Adelaide, Melbourne, and uh, more Sydney, Brisbane, but you know not so much about Perth in that area there. Hmm. Um, question distribution and all that if people are looking for what you're distributing what is a key to look for uh, in your Australian wines the key I mean our portfolio is called legend import so if it says the word legend on the back label it's one of ours okay Um, Okay. but as far as you know the key I, I would say you know just I would yeah I mean I think there's a, a world of wines that people have not tried, so I would, I would, I would try Australian wine in general. And I think the reason why we were able to join the show was was the book that we wrote called How to Drink Australian that I'm came sorry. out in September. <laughs> oh my, I I'm slipped up on that too. I am very sorry. I was <laughs> going to have you tell us a little bit about the book and how it can be ordered. Yeah. Yeah, tell yeah. us about the book. What what prompted yeah, so you Jane and I the spent, book? I mean, selling Australian wine and realizing that we needed to to share the story and 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 write a book that that we thought did so both for the trade for the professional, but also uh, did so with a inviting narrative um, to make it very consumer friendly. Uh, it's called How to Drink Australian. You can go to howtodrinkaustralian.com um, to get a signed copy from us. Uh, oh. If you go to bookshop.org, uh, it will essentially source books like Amazon, but from independent bookshops. Um, IndieBound will also give you a list of bookshops in your area. You can order it through if they're not already stocking it. And, of course, you can always buy it through Amazon. Um, but, uh, yeah, the book is, is around. Uh, it's about uh, just under 500 pages, uh, all original maps, uh, about – uh, a lot of really striking photography uh, Two oh, artists wow. commissioned to do original artwork for it. Um, it's uh, entered into all the awards running this year. So hopefully we, you know, get some love. Um, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it was a, a two and a half year project that um, is finally out in the world and we couldn't be happier with it. No, see, it was just, just came out uh, last month, I think. Yeah, last said. month. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is it, 
well, then it's not a textbook then per se. It's it's uh, tells about Australian wines and the regions and all that good stuff, and just an educational book. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Very good. Very good. Uh, so it's uh, again uh, how to drink Australian wines, an essential modern wine book. And so I'll be on there. And again, if you want to sign copy from John and and Jane or or just one of you, I don't know who signs it. How to drink? Oh, we'll both Aust- sign it. You'll both sign it. Okay, there you go. How to drink Australian dot com. Dot com. And uh, they'll uh, you can order it through them and get a, a signed copy from them. I'll have to do that. Uh, so, uh, any other last thoughts here? Uh, before we say goodnight to you? I think one thing that has always, or I guess at least recently, you know, motivated what I look for to drink and so on is we all, everyone's always looking for a great value in the bottle of wine. And if you drink the thing that everyone else is drinking, you're getting the worst value. <coughs> Go out and be curious and drink something you haven't drank before and Build a relationship with a local wine shop, and and they'll sort you Always. out. Yeah, that's I I preach that. Build a relationship with local wine shops. That's really the best way to do it for for anything. So very good. All right, um, we appreciate your time and uh, interesting. We'll promote your book here. I I will continue to make comments about it in the future shows. So. We'll try to get people to uh, excited about it and continue to look at it and look for it and all. And thank you for taking the time tonight joining us. And best of luck to you and to your new book. And, uh, you know, good luck on awards. That's always nice to have those <laughs> on the shelf. <laughs> thank you so much for your time and appreciate having a chat. No, it was our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. You too. too. Oh, I just took a sip of wine and almost Mm -hmm. choked. I can barely talk. Oh, that's Uh, not good. No. Hmm. Excuse me. Uh, Oh, that was fun. Australian wines. I've always enjoyed Australian wines. I have drank Australian (laughs) wines for years. And uh, I, I've always looked for new ones and all that. Some very disappointed, some extremely happy with. And the price mm-hmm. point's always been good too. Uh, I usually, usually get right around the twenty dollar price range, and I've always been pleasantly surprised with most of them. A uh, mm-hmm. couple of quick comments. This is out of Wine Spectator, the newest issue. Uh, their Palm Beach Food and Wine Festival is coming up on Sunday, December the 10th. That is in a month and a half. It's from 2 to 6, Palm Beach County Convention Center. There's going to be a whole bunch of restaurants there. There's going to be a whole bunch of wineries there. And they have a fine dining event and seminars on Thursday, December 7th through Sunday, December 10th. And the grand tasting is on December the 10th. So if you are so inclined to be in that area or to travel to that area or to check it out, go to 
pbfoodwinefest.com. And that's pbpalmbeachfoodwinefest.com. A lot of stuff. I'm not even going to attempt to go through all the names of the wineries or the restaurants that are going to be there. So uh, the uh, events will be taking place in the Four Seasons Resorts of Breakers, the Bucca Raton Resort, uh, Cafe Boulard, Marcella's La Serena, and many more. It's quite an event. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that they put on every year. And then the Whiskey Fest is coming to a couple places around the country. New York City on November the 9th and Las Vegas on December the 2nd. And those are, uh, uh, that's a pretty big thing. If you're a whiskey fan, uh, Wine Spectator magazine also has a sister uh, magazine called Whiskey Advocate. And that is your website, whiskeyadvocate.com slash whiskeyfest, F-E-S-T. And they're going to have uh, whiskeys from all over the world, uh, all sorts of types uh, of whiskeys. And uh, this is uh, whiskey seminars, first come, first serve basis, but they're all included in the ticket. Uh, buffet all evening. And you also get a Whiskey Fest canvas tote bag, a Glencairn crystal nosing glass and a one-year subscription to whiskey advocate magazine so quite a bit's included in the ticket so check it out at whiskeyadvocate.com slash whiskey fest um sounds you know if new york city or las vegas weren't so far away i wouldn't mind attending something like that uh, early bird ticket specials are now too, so if you order early, you can get it. But if you're traveling in New York or living in that area or in Las Vegas, November 9th, New York, December 2nd, Las Vegas. So I wanted to share those with you tonight. And I think that's it. Now, okay. don't forget, don't forget to check out the book, though. Uh, it's. Uh, Again, how to drink Australian, you know, call now, uh, an essential modern wine book, or go to howtodrinkaustralian.com to get a signed copy of it. And it sounds like a cool book. I mean, it's not just, you know, this region here, you know, these are the wines that grow there and these are the vineyards and that's it. And then we go to this region. From what he said, you know, pictures and maps and all sorts of stuff. It sounds like a pretty interesting book. So yeah. check it out. Uh, and we're done for the evening. Okay. It is uh, 8 Okay. Different monitor. 8.07 p.m. Eastern Time on October yeah, October nineteenth and we will be back next Thursday, the twenty sixth of October at seven PM Eastern time. If you know someone or yourself would like to be a guest on the show and you're representing some form of the wine industry, please let us know. <laughs> you can at all about wine 
101 at gmail.com. All about wine 101 at gmail.com. Those are the numbers 101. Keep that in mind. Otherwise, yeah. you go all about wine. O N E Z E R O. Yeah. Or I O I. No, is that? Yeah. 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 So, uh, Email and uh, let us know you want to be on the show, and and that goes to Ron, and he'll get some more information. And uh, who knows, you might you might be on the show uh, at a future time. Be, uh, yes, yes. Out. Yeah. And oh, what did I say? Don't yeah. forget, <clears throat> flightlineradio.com continuously oh. streaming twenty-four-seven. Yeah. They have all sorts of different musics and stuff popping up on there. Mike usually usually is on live uh, Saturday morning from 7 to 9, but he is not going to be on this week. So you'll miss him this week. Uh, but uh, he's on usually every Saturday. Uh, yeah, really. That's sad. Uh, but... Uh, He'll be on next week. Also, though, on Saturdays at noon, uh, replay of this show. Uh, That's right. If you uh, ever miss a show, always tune in Saturdays at noon. And yep. Mondays Uh-oh. at 7? And uh, it, Wednesday it at 6? It switched when- to Wednesdays. I, I yeah I wrote to the to the uh, to Phil and to Cap you're talking about first uh, and fifteenth um, I said it's a lot easier to remember it's going to be on at seven a.m. Wednesday seven p.m. Wednesday evening Eastern time okay right, that this, is easier this, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I've been listening to it on the I've been listening to it on the way to work and it's just uh, having a blast it's a, it's a <laughs> the stuff it's they talk funny. about and bring up. It yeah. is. Um, it's, it's a good show. Just, uh, it, and it's, the topics are everything. Yeah. You know, I mean, they just they yeah. start out on one topic, and you never know where they're going yeah. to end. You know, so. Yeah. But and, every. And I wonder if. You know. <laughs> I just wonder if they know where it's going. Yeah. But they don't. Know. It's just, no, they don't. They they have they no idea. Yeah. No, no, they and don't. Well, uh, I talk to these guys yeah. every week, and and they they have mm-hmm. no idea where it's going, um, but it's, it's it's so much fun. So uh, it's first and fifteenth. Yeah. That's what it's called. Uh, and uh, uh, Phil and Cap are the two that put the thing on. They do an excellent job. It's really funny. So you can listen mm-hmm. to that on Flightline Radio every Wednesday at seven a.m. and seven p.m. So if you yeah. uh, uh, want to catch that. And then, again, a replay of this show's on Saturdays at noon. And then Mike usually is live every Saturday morning, but he won't be this week. And if you are an expiring DJ, then Mm -hmm. get over to Mike at uh, FlightlineRadio.com or me, and I'll pass on because Mike's always looking for someone who might want to do a couple of our shift uh, sometime during the week, he's open. Well, so, yeah, yeah. It's a so, uh, and, uh, we get more listeners during a live show. I've noticed that. So it's a, do you? it's always like yeah. a yeah. Eh, you know, it's it's kind of an interaction thing. I don't know. It's just a, that's true. A lot of faces are yeah, they want to hear that someone is there playing, not just you know automation. And it's always thing, fun. But, uh, you know, when you yeah. were on. <laughs> Human hours. Uh, 
I was able to talk to you and request all that. <laughs> now, now that you switched to that seven in the morning on Saturday, you say, ah, but uh, I've been thinking about it. I don't know. Uh, it is kind of early for me too because I, I stay up late on Fridays. Sometimes Fridays I, I go to bed around one o'clock in the morning. Oh, and then the alarm goes up, and then I have to get ready for the show, and you know. Uh, drive, you know, three and a half hours to the studio and, oh, no, wait, it's right around the corner. Why am I driving? <laughs> why, why am I, I driving, driving all around Orlando? <laughs> I'm like, go around the block. Yeah, really. <laughs> I'm blocking yeah. on I-4. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and then you catch that Disney traffic and that just makes it, you know, you you get stressed because you yeah. don't know if you're going to make it in time. Yeah. You know. yeah. yeah. Uh, they got like 12 exits off of I-4. And each one of them are packed. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it, so. always, always ridiculous. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. but, yeah, uh, yeah check, yeah. check out flightlineradio.com. Just F L I G H D flightlineradio.com. Yes. Thank you very much. You all be safe. Have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you all next week. Have a great weekend and a great week ahead. Thank you. Be safe. Thanks for listening. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine wine. with your host, Juan. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archived shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. Well, I think uh, Ron disconnected. So with that, we are off. Thank you. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.